Okay, I can see that we are live for this Onlytica LinkedIn Live session. And today we are here to talk about the metaverse. And we have lined up two most special guests. Usually people say very special. So while I'm hosting, <laughs> I want to make sure that people are most special. That's the level above. Um, we have we are very lucky to be joined by Jeremy Dalton and Alex Rule. Um, to kick off, I'm just going to let them each introduce themselves in their own words. Alex, do you like to go first and just tell us how you got into the metaverse? Sure. How did I get into the metaverse? Well, like most people, it all started when a friend of mine said, look at this cool VR headset that I got for Christmas, like about six years ago. And I put it on and the first thing I saw was some kind of like amazing circus act. And I almost like bashed my head on the wall by like, you know, trying to get out of the way and realizing, oh my God, what is this medium that has kind of tricked my brain into thinking that I'm actually there? Been obsessed with it ever since. And now I am primarily a virtual reality uh, creator, director, work a lot in the B2B sector to kind of bring uh, soft skills training to life. You know, I've worked with Jeremy on several projects where we've kind of brought it to life things like uh, racial, uh, racial bias training or uh, managerial training, sales training, all sorts of things. So I'm very excited to be here to talk about the applications of the metaverse in the B2B sector. Fantastic. Jeremy, same question. So I got involved in the metaverse back when we were just talking about virtual reality. And this was about a year or so after Palmer Lucky put his DK1 uh, Oculus Rift on Kickstarter. And I, start, and, I, and I tried it and I thought, wow, this is absolutely an incredible experience. And, you know, there were a load of other technologies at the time, like artificial intelligence, IoT, all still, still going on, still going strong. But virtual reality was just such a visceral technology for me. And I was, I could see what the potential was for both the business and the consumer world. So I started campaigning in PwC UK um, at the time to, to create a dedicated team around this stuff. And, and I think they eventually got tired of my belly aching and in 2017 allowed me to, uh, uh, to start this team. And since then we've gone from strength to strength and from, uh, from, from name to name. We've been through VRAR to XR and now uh, the metaverse technologies. And ultimately what we do is, is help businesses and in different industries to really understand the metaverse and its constituent technologies and, and also how they can gain value from it. Okay, so we're, we're in good hands. Everyone here has, has been here from the start, of course, apart from your host, but um, I'm only gonna be asking the questions and I suppose we're going to start with maybe the most existential one about this. I know that this is not uh, this is not a question that necessarily has a single definitive answer, but I'd be interested to hear from both of you what you feel um, are some of the defining traits of the metaverse. What makes you know an experience or a space be within it or not? Is it to do with the tech? Is it to do with the experience? Uh, I'll go to you, Alex, first. Oh yeah, this is uh, this is where the claws come out, and we start to uh, <laughs> to see the different kind of like um, paths people are following in terms of defining the metaverse. For me personally, I always think of the defining thing of the metaverse is the fact that it's essentially a spatialized three uh, three dimensional version of the current internet. So a lot of people would say that the the, the metaverse only exists when it is a um, you know a three dimensional world where people can socialize and interact with each other in real time. For me personally, though, I think it's more a case of, you know, currently we sit here on apps and scroll all day and the metaverse is simply when this becomes 
this and interacting, you know, it, we are embodying the internet. So whether that be with something like virtual reality technology, which allows you to kind of step into a fully virtual environment, or it's a case of, you know, you're scrolling Instagram and you come across an ad that you really like and you want to see whether that sofa would look good in your home. So you kind of overlay it into your living room. That for me is kind of the defining thing. It is kind of like stepping beyond the kind of 2D screen uh, and having some kind of immersive three-dimensional way of connecting with the internet. But I'm sure Jeremy's going to give you a way more solid uh, <laughs> answer to that. <laughs> I think um, I, I will attempt it anyway. The, the way I'd look at it and the simplest way I can consider a metaverse, uh, and I use the, the article A instead of the metaverse, is it's a, a form of virtual world inhabited by real people in, in which those people can communicate, interact with one another and explore those three-dimensional worlds, as you said. Now, the only limitation of that definition, though, is it doesn't cover uh, any sort of experience that is equally immersive but doesn't contain any people in it but may, may perhaps give you information as well. So, for example, the, the B2B virtual reality experiences that we've worked on, Alice, uh, Alex, around uh, training, for example, in the soft skills space, you know, there's a reason why the team that I'm in is called the Metaverse Technologies team. It's a way to get away from the metaverse itself and talk about the technologies that are connected to, related to, and in some senses underpin the metaverse, uh, such as virtual reality, augmented reality, and, uh, and even blockchain and artificial intelligence, all of these things converge together to produce this, this new way of working, this new way of living, this new way of playing that is three-dimensional in nature and, and allows us to, uh, to experience things in a whole new way. So I, I want to pick up on the word sort of technology that you use there, because just before we came on, we were talking a little bit about hardware as a concept. And then obviously there's maybe... You know, something like the engines that people might be familiar with from something like gaming, as, as you kind of alluded to there. Where where would you say we're at in each of those in, in terms of where the technology is at, maybe in hardware terms and then in a sort of more abstract sense, the engines that that need to run? So if you're if you're thinking about the let's start with the hardware, actually, because that's that's an interesting one. The hardware to have an experience around the metaverse is is in in very much ways already with us right now because we've got our laptops our desktop systems and we can use those to experience a form of the metaverse but also with our mobile phones in fact you can have uh, you can experience augmented reality activations that allow you to view b2b and b2c products in in different ways so I think the hardware is is both there and not there at the same time, because if you go to the the next generation of thinking around it or where we're starting to see things like the headsets come in, those they are they're they're mainstream available right now, but they're not quite at the level that we would consider mature because there's still a, a way to go in terms of comfort, in terms of weight, in terms of fashionability, in terms of support for eyeglasses, whereas um, et cetera, et cetera. But we'll, we battery will get Battery life, possibly, as well. What's that? Battery life, as well. Yes, battery yeah. life, exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Alex, what kind of, you know, staying on the hardware, what kind of, you know, uh, restrictions would you be thinking about in terms of where the hardware 
is at now? How is that kind of limiting the capacity of people like you to make things um, just just based on sort of how far the, the hardware itself has come? It's yeah, it's a really interesting question because a lot of people, especially people that would, you know, come at things from a creative first perspective would say that story is the most important. You know, it's all about the content, baby. That's not really true in, in the metaverse. You know, technology has to be at the forefront of a lot of the decisions that you make creatively. Take, for example, um, a project that Jeremy and I work together on for PwC UK called In My Shoes. It's a piece where you step into the shoes of a colleague that is kind of experiencing unconscious bias in the workplace. Now, we made that project during a time where it wasn't possible. We were in the, pan the height of the pandemic. It was impossible to kind of get together and film this as a project, you know, that would be kind of a very simple 360 video, which would allow you to kind of just passively consume this content and therefore be a lot more widely distributable. What we ended up doing was making this in a way that technically pushed the limits of the hardware because we used a kind of really advanced video technique called volumetric capture, which basically is a fancy way of saying we filmed it in full 3D. Um, and, and what that did was that changed totally the creative decisions that we made. All of a sudden, you know, you can't have as many scenes because the hardware cannot run, you know, it cannot run that much data. It can't kind of hold that much information. The app size, um, you know, is a consideration because if you have something that's too big and too cumbersome and generating too much, uh, using too much power on the headset, you're going to overheat the, uh, the headsets and therefore it's not as widely distributable. So all of these factors kind of came into play when making decisions about that project. And I think, you know, the end project uh, has gone on to do really amazing things. Uh, and we managed to kind of roll it out on the, uh, the Quest 2, which is probably the most accessible bit of hardware. But realistically, if that piece could have been shown, you know, on a simple headset that played on like a phone, would 10 times more of people been able to see it? Probably. You know, would that have uh, kind of, again, changed the way that we'd gone about creating it? Definitely. So the hardware is is still a limiting factor and it's mainly due to not only the fact that people can't really, you know, be in it for too long, um, but also because of the fact that, you know, the kind of content you can create for it is still limited. Yeah, and that's exactly why we created the, the desktop equivalent, right? You know, in the sense that with this experience, which is three-dimensional in nature, can be accessed or experienced through a virtual reality headset. And with that, there are there are trade-offs to make. So you get greater immersion at the cost of scale. Uh, equally, the desktop version we created gives you greater scale, but at the cost of immersion, because you are not immersed watching this experience or not as immersed watching it go ahead on a, on a laptop screen while you're in your room uh, in, in a completely different world. So yeah, there's, there's always a trade-off to be made. Where, where do both of you feel that maybe the sort of, if you were if you were saying, you know, what's a company that's developing something right now to watch over the next 18 months, where are your sort of hopes? You know, if you were, if you were placing bets on where the technological advancements were going to come from so that you can maybe make that project, if you were making that project again in 18 months, you could do it the way you really want to. Where, which kind of companies, what kind of hardware advancements is it making it possible to access on desktop? Is it just cheaper, lighter, higher processing power headsets? Where do you guys kind of feel that's maybe going to come from? So I'm not, I'm not personally interested in pushing more of what we can do on desktop. I'm more interested in the fight that is going on right now to bring 
headsets to a place that make them accessible and intuitive to the everyday user. And that's not necessarily in the consumer world, in the business world as well. Because when we speak to business leaders, business leaders are people as well, believe it or not. And um, <laughs> they, they experience the same challenges that a lot of everyday consumers do as well in that they feel sometimes uncomfortable wearing headsets. They feel self-conscious. They don't want to wear headsets in front of other people because they don't know how to use them. They don't feel confident in, in using controllers or using their hands in 3D space versus the keyboard and mouse that they've been using for decades now. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we need to improve user experience to such an extent that that uh, being able to achieve something on a headset, whether that is uh, providing remote assistance to someone in the field, whether that is uh, being able to communicate with your fellow colleagues, whether that is marketing a product to uh, to your to relevant stakeholder groups, it needs to be able to be done in such a way that people don't need an instruction manual for because. It's just intuitive. Pick it up, put on the headset. Oh, I can figure this out. You know, this is what it's all about. So ideally, that's where I want to go. And in terms of the the type of organizations that would be pushing this type, this uh, this area that I'm talking about, I'm mostly interested in the hardware manufacturers. As a result, I'm interested in also you know the universities and the research divisions because they are they are performing the work that will help us better understand the psychology of people as they you know, decide to put on the headset, as they use the headsets themselves and the hardware. Um, and that will give us greater insight to achieving those goals I mentioned. Hmm. That makes sense. Alex, where are you? Where is your kind of attention focus? What, what are you sort of hoping? You know, what, what would be a breakthrough you'd be looking at in the next or hoping for in the next 18 months or, or longer, obviously? Yeah, I mean, it might be a bit of a cliche, but I'm very much eagle-eyed on Apple. I think there's a lot of talk about Apple getting into the AR, VR. We don't know, you know, which way they're going to come at it, but there's a lot of talk about them coming into the hardware arena. That would be really interesting because currently you've got, you know, Meta leading the way, basically. Their headset is by far um, the most widely uh, bought closely followed, I think, by the PSVR, which obviously is not a B2B, uh, you know, bit of gear and you need a PS4 um, or 5 to, to run it. Um, so I'm really interested to see what Apple do, because if Apple enter the space, Apple have, had, have got a history of, you know, user-first design. So I think that would potentially be interesting to see how they come at exactly what Jeremy's talking about. How do they solve that problem for the fact that it's not actually the most intuitive thing in the world to put on a computer on your face and understand how to interact with it. I mean, you know, I've been working in VR for like six years now and every new iteration of something that comes out, I have to relearn. Like I was literally just doing a podcast in VR yesterday and I'd never used the app that we were using before. And I was like trying to get on board with the menu system. I couldn't understand how to like navigate me transporting around the room. And I'm a professional like in this industry. So what hope does the average consumer have? So I think, you know, eyes on Apple to see, you know, not only what do they come up with in terms of a user experience, but also introducing that competition that is so kind of needed in the hardware sector. Because apart from Meta um, and Sony, 
yeah, you've got HTC and you've got uh, the Pico, which was recently bought by um, ByteDance, is it? The owner of uh, TikTok. So it'd be interesting to see what they come up with. But currently, you know, there's not enough kind of competition, I don't think, in terms of pushing the hardware uh, beyond what it has been for the last um, couple of years. And that's not to decry, you know, the advancements. You look back at original VR headsets, they literally cost millions of pounds and they took up a whole room. And that was just a matter of decades ago. So where we are right now is unbelievable um and but i still have i still have painful memories alex and i'm sure you do as well of lugging tethered headsets that tethered headsets that are meant to be connected to a computer and in, if you want to take them anywhere it has to be a laptop but putting the laptop the cables the headset the tripods the sensors all into a in military star pelican case shipping that which is it was about 22 23 kilos so right on the edge of checking luggage taking that all over the world and setting it up, which took about, you know, half an hour if the room was right. And if the room was wrong, in other words, if you had any shiny surfaces, mirrors, glass, anything like that, you would mess up the tracking and it wouldn't work. Um, and after all of that hassle and all of that time, you could get one person into virtual reality. That was 2016, you know, and so we've, we've, we've come a long way since then in only a few years. And after you've lugged all that equipment, you can't bring a change of clothes because you've, you've, you've got your carry-on limit as well. So. I'm all about sacrificing the clothes for technology. Definitely. <laughs> technology first. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when it, so, so we sort of covered the hardware a little bit. If we, if we, it seems like we sort of moved seamlessly a little bit into the software question anyway, because it sounds like usability is clearly a concern. You know, why, why do you feel that hasn't been addressed? Do you think people have been kind of just head down getting to the point where it's consumer tech that can exist in um, in a living room and sort of have that ease of at least starting of, of sort of entering the met making entering the metaverse easy enough um, and then sort of in a wider sense from from a software perspective um, what are the kind of um, you know virtual reality type environments or engines that that you think are kind of leading the space at the minute so I think from a software perspective, um, there's been there's been a, a two stream approach where a lot of organizations have been uh, trying to tackle the consumer market, which has challenges in terms of scale and having to reach a large number of people and the marketing associated with that is, is difficult. And then, of course, there are challenges that are no less hard in the business world, but um, are equally um, are equally significant in the sense that in the business world, you need to be able to convince uh, business leaders of their value. You have to look at return on investment, uh, business cases. You have to be able to have a plan to integrate it within an organization. And those are all difficult problems that are still being grappled with. And, and of course, the use case itself, and this is probably a good point for us to all discuss, but what are the applications of this technology in in a b2b context you know there are there are lots of different ideas we all have but it's at the end of the day up to business leaders to engage with and to to approve and encourage their usage so that we can start to to uh, to introduce them successfully within those organizations here here i would say you know the, the one other thing that kind of comes to mind in terms of the software side and specifically talking about that B2B context is that 
it's really amusing watching the journey someone goes on as they get more and more exposure to VR. So someone that has never used VR before is going to have a totally different kind of uh, experience when they put on the headset and try and engage with software compared to someone that's done it maybe 10 to 20 times compared to someone that's done it you know, 50 to 100 times. And, and that journey is quite interesting to develop for because, you know, you you have to essentially rebuild the software every time and tailor it to that person. If, if you, you know, if you're going into a, a company that has very little resource and they want to be able to outroll like a health and safety training experience in VR, well, that software needs to be, you know, essentially user-friendly for someone that's never used it before. So they can literally pick up the headset, start the app and it's go you know it just goes right it tells you everything whereas something is someone else that might have like a five person team for facilitating a, a big exhibition that's a totally different story that can be a little bit more you know you can build that that onboarding into the physical world and then they get into vr uh and you know they can maybe do a bit more complex things because there's someone there to troubleshoot so yeah i think it's also a very interesting thing to be thinking about who is the end user of this and where are they going to be on that journey? And therefore, should you be using hand tracking or should you simply be able to get them in a headset, stare at the word go or start, and then it just is seamless from there. And, and we've worked for a few years on, on various projects around, around the metaverse space and B2B. And, and we've both seen the, uh, the different approaches and the, more, the greater maturity that's come from this, from the software developers in this space. So sometimes we will create custom applications. So literally right from scratch, you know, build, design them, build them, deploy them. There are now opportunities with low code, no code solutions that are kind of like the, the olden days WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get type uh, web editors where you can drag and drop things there's no real complicated code required. Maybe it's about, you know, pulling down a, a drop down list of actions. You know, when person looks at this avatar, then avatar turns head, avatar plays this audio file, et cetera, et cetera. Now, those have constraints. Those platforms have constraints around what you can produce and the, f the fidelity of the applications that you can create. But they represent a valid market for, for B2B to start building stuff that is a little bit more bespoke then the the final way of doing things which is literally just take off the shelf software it was built for this specific purpose let's say it was built for uh, public speaking or it was built for leadership training um, and you have no editing abilities on that whatsoever you just have to you just need to license it and put it into your organization and make it work and uh, so those are the the kind of three different areas that we're seeing um, b2b software vendors develop in and thus, by doing that, giving businesses greater optionality when it comes to uh, to using virtual reality and, and wider metaverse type software. Yes, it sounds like kind of ultimately we, we sort of I, I keep coming at this question from the angle of technology, but the expertise of people like yourselves who kind of know how to implement it and know the right questions to ask. It's still key as it is with any new technology. It's kind of it's only as good as the people you have to operate it and the people who know the right questions to ask. So I wanted to kind of go next to circling around the sort of question of B2B use cases and things like that. When you're starting to sort of, you know, for example, a prospective client approaches you, Alex, and starts saying, um, you know, I'm interested in 
instead of building something in a in a metaverse type environment, something you might recognize as a metaverse use case. What are the questions that you're sort of asking them or, or the things you're trying to understand to, to almost confirm that it's going to be a good use case you can build, you know, you, that you, you definitely feel like you've got a live one, you can build something that's going to be a good user experience. Um, it, you know, it sounds like one is, have you ever done this before? Do the people in your organization, have they ever put a headset on before or is this the first time? But what are some of the other questions you might be kind of starting to probe in that process? Yeah, I mean, uh, as I kind of alluded to before, the number one thing is what is the solution that you're hoping, you know, what, what problem is this going to solve essentially? Like always in a B2B context is it's not really, you know, if someone ever comes to me and says, we want to do something in the metaverse and then they're just trying to shoehorn an idea in just to kind of be able to use the word metaverse in their branding, I'll say, you know, realistically, uh, we need to reverse engineer what the problem is. And then I can tell you whether or not metaverse technology is going to solve it. Um, so, you know, I definitely have people that come to me with ideas that realistically, given the fact that they want to achieve a massive amount of scale, aka they want thousands of people to kind of be able to go through and they have one person internally that they plan on putting the whole project on, including the facilitation afterwards, I might say, well, hang on a second, let's let's look at let's look at why and, and kind of is this the best use case of something like um yeah, my mind, you know, obviously goes to VR purely because that's what I primarily work in. But the same with AR as well. Like, could this be achieved in any other way? Or are you just trying to kind of slap the innovative uh kind of label on it? Um so the question it, once we've gone through that process, and absolutely, yes, this is a metaverse case, aka it's a project that would benefit and achieve a return on investment by having that next level immersion, by increasing that engagement and that user kind of experience because of the fact that you're going from just watching something to actually, you know, experience something firsthand. Uh, once we've gone through that process, then again, we start to kind of dig into, okay, well, where is this going to be shown? Are you using this externally with clients or, you know, uh, what's, what is the kind of the, the primary goal of the piece? Is it going to be shown at an exhibition to 30 people or is it going to be used internally as like a mindfulness uh, kind of experience, aka it needs to be kind of, um, it needs to be built in a way that someone could maybe just pick up a headset and know how to use it instinctively themselves rather than having a fully facilitated experience. Also, a big question is, is this going to be standalone as in the VR experience need or the, the metaverse experience, whether that's AR, VR, you know, some kind of virtual environment online? It does this need to um you know, does this need to kind of have all of the information in and be kind of packed to the teeth with everything? Or is it part of a bigger uh, kind of project? Is it part of, for example, uh, training seminars where you're, this is going to be a small part of a bigger project? In which case, again, we look at, well, okay, which part of this is going to be the most powerful and impactful using metaverse technologies? So those are some of the initial kind of high level things. And then when you start to get into the weeds about the creation of it, you know, you're looking about things like, do you want someone to feel like they have agency over, over something, aka should it be interactive? Do you want someone to actually be able to physically interact with the environment or other kind of people in the space? Or do you want it to be a guided experience, a passive experience where you're kind of, you know, you are directing them essentially through something and just 
kind of curating that emotional experience for them. So yeah, there's like, you, we could literally drill down into so many different things, but those are the kind of high level things um, um, with someone, yeah. Has, and then another good high level question to ask as well is based on the problem that you're trying to solve, what currently is the status quo solution that you've got in place to solve that problem? And how does that compare to what you're proposing, whether that is a metaverse environment on a desktop, whether that is a, uh, a solely accessed virtual reality experience, whether that, it, whether that is an augmented reality experience on your mobile phone, whatever it is, you've got to be able to compare the two. And if you find based on that analysis that, you know, there doesn't seem to be much benefit of the, the proposed solution over the status quo, then that's not a very strong case for investing in these new solutions. And that's probably um, a good example of, of what's considered, as Alex was talking about, a vanity project, which is just purely uh, purely to look good, but with little substance to back it up. Yeah, looking for an excuse to slap the metaverse sticker on your, on your Absolutely. market. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we've, it, it seems like we've sort of touched on training um, as a sort of common use case and maybe um sort of more immersive sort of e exhibition type um experiences what are the other kind of problems you find yourself really successfully solving you know where you where you sort of run that assessment jeremy you think okay the metaverse will take this to the next level there is genuinely something there what are the kind of use cases that you're seeing more of or that you're you're hoping to kind of hoover up more of in in the coming months and years so outside of the B2B marketing space, you've also got the recruitment space. So at PwC, for example, we use um, virtual worlds to engage with the next generation of talent for the firm. And uh, we've got our own platform called Virtual Park. And to date, we've, in, we've uh, met with over 20,000 students um, in that environment. And that's been fantastic because it's allowed us to increase our reach because the other status quo way of doing this, and we haven't abandoned it, is to physically go to universities around the UK, set up a stall, and then chat to, to students. And there's only so many people that you can, that you can free up to, to go over there. There's only uh, so much time that you can spend uh, setting up or preparing kit, traveling, setting up kit, demobilizing, traveling back, and so on. But with a metaverse, suddenly the ability to scale up that reach, the potential has become tremendous because students can come to us wherever they are based in the UK, if they simply have an internet connection and, um, and a computer. So that gives us the recruitment's a fantastic use case. There's also the operational side of things. And we're starting to talk to clients now about the efficiencies or the benefits that you would get from introducing a metaverse environment as a way of everyday working. Now, I'm not talking about doing your Excel and your PowerPoint slides in a virtual world. I don't think that makes a lot of sense, at least not now. But uh, I'm talking about being co-located with your colleagues in a completely virtual environment. And the reason why that's advantageous is because if you think about it, remote working is obviously here to stay and it's given us fantastic benefits, but it does come with downsides as well. One of those downsides is the decreased ability to connect with people on an emotional level and in a quick fashion. So if I'm seated in an office and I'm sitting next to someone, I can literally just turn my head and ask a question. 
you know, then and there, done and dusted. If I am working from home, I have to firstly um, find the person that I want to talk to on chat, you know, message them, are you free to talk, then wait for them to respond back. Yes, they are. Okay. Here's my link to the, uh, to the video conferencing room. Click in there, wait for them to click in there, have the small talk online, chat through the question I want, end call, and then I've got my answer. It's a much more elongated process, and that's for one query. If you need to multiply that across the day by five or 10 queries, then you can see how you start to lose a lot of efficiency, some of which could be gained by being co-located in a virtual world. And instead of physically turning your head, or it could be physically if you had a virtual reality headset on, but let's assume you're on desktop screen, um, it could be just you know opening your mic and, uh, and saying to your colleague who is virtually sitting there with their avatar that you have this question and you're wondering what to do. So that's those are exciting use cases for me. And there are there are many more, of course, like training that we've spoken about. Yeah. And another one I would add is um, I'm seeing a lot more kind of uh, inquiries to our company about um, like B2B promotional kind of like experiences. So, for example, um, wedding venues that want to kind of like get the word out about their wedding kind of uh, venues without having to try to like market for people to come to them. They kind of offer these kind of metaverse experiences where you can virtually visit the venue and there's someone there who is a specialist in that venue who can, like Jeremy said, kind of can answer all the questions that you would have as if you were there walking through the site. But it's all done virtually, which means that people can get through far more venues. They can ask, you know, they can spend more time kind of like asking those questions and kind of going through and even like to some level see like personalization of that venue. You know, oh, actually, I would imagine the flowers might be blue so there we go let's change this blue now you know it's kind of adding that kind of like whole level of um of a personalized kind of metaverse experience and then you know another uh, example is um I was approached by a truck company recently. They're like a, a global manufacturer of like some very specific niche part of a truck. And what happens is they either have to kind of fly customers over to kind of see this kind of part in person, or they send a kind of shoddy video that kind of shows what it does, but it usually is like the precursor to someone coming over because it's a large investment to make just off of a, one promotional video. And again, that's an example where you know, lo and behold, the metaverse, in, whether that's, you know, on a desktop virtual environment or putting on a VR headset or even just like AR projecting the truck in a part into your room, all of a sudden, again, I can see it, I can interact with it, I can see it in action. Uh, and it's as close to, you know, being there and being kind of, you know, sold that product uh, as you possibly can without, you know, with all of the friction of traveling and expense of that as well. So... Yeah, interesting. It seems like it's branching out into lots of different sectors now. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, if any of you heard a sound, that was people in the office shuddering at the idea of me being able to unmute and ask them questions at any point in time. <laughs> um, but um, yeah. Pros and cons. Pros and cons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we all have a colleague we wish couldn't ask us questions, but uh, that's probably me <laughs> in this office. But um <laughs> I thought that the recruitment was was an interesting one that sort of hadn't necessarily occurred. And it, it sort of takes me on to something that you've both raised, which is the ability to reduce the total amount of travel that is happening in order to facilitate a lot of kind of interactions that people feel are necessary. I think a strongly held sentiment that I've heard a lot over the last two and a half years is 
it is better in person sometimes, isn't it? You know, people kind of feel that way about something. And I thought, you know, the idea of being able to show someone around a venue is interesting. It also probably, if you're thinking about hiring the venue to do a 10,000 person event and some of those people will come virtually, it's fantastic if you can experience it virtually first and, and see what it's like as well. So I'd be interested, you know, how you both feel about the potential for, you know, it to reduce travel and the, the potential impact of that. Because I think, you know, often new technology sometimes comes with this idea of, oh, well, that's going to take a lot of computational power. That's going to have a lot of environmental impact. I think, you know, what what kind of conversations are you having on the other side of that in terms of being able to, you know, for example, rather than sending two colleagues to uh, from London to Aberdeen, you know, getting getting some of those kind of air miles back, what, what are the kind of conversations you're having in a, a client's actively putting that together or are they... Or are you sort of still having to remind them almost that this is a way around that problem? So we always bring in the uh, the environmental benefits when you talk about this technology in terms of their ability to sometimes, not in all cases, negate the need to meet face to face. But what I really want to do as a next step is dig into the numbers behind this, because there are negative ah. Uh, environmental um, impacts as a result of engaging with this technology as well. So, um, you know, if you decide to to put on a virtual reality headset and meet with, and, and run a workshop with others as opposed to flying over there face-to-face, uh, -face, then I would hypothesize that there would be net sustainability benefits to that. Now, in order to support that, I'm currently working with our, our colleagues in our sustainability and climate change team to build a model to be able to answer that question in a more definitive manner and less anecdotal manner. Um, and uh, that research is currently being conducted. And my aim is to be able to provide that as a, as a free online tool for anyone to be able to access and, uh, and provide their own quick calculations on so that they can they can take the, the net sustainability benefits, put that into their business case for using the metaverse, whether it's for a, a workshop or, uh, or some sort of event. It's interesting to that point, and I'm, I'm so curious, Jeremy, to hear the results of that. That will be really interesting because obviously, like you say, Jack, it is very much at the forefront of a lot of conversations. Um, the fact that, you know, essentially remote access to, to uh, to things like events could have a really positive effect on the environment. Um, I saw something recently about the fact that not only are you, you know, potentially reducing travel and therefore are you going to achieve that, uh, that kind of sustainability, but also the fact that, let's say, for example, I think it was like the Travis Scott uh, Fortnite concert, which, yes, isn't a B2B necessarily, but if we take that principle, right, Something like, I think it was millions like attended this concert, right? Versus quite a similar amount of people that attended over the span of like four months in like a multi-state, potentially global tour. Now you think about like the logistics of like an event like that traveling for four months, not only that on top of the fact that all of these people are then traveling from various places to go to it, all of a sudden a one-off event in a virtual environment that yes, is obviously not the same as meeting in person and seeing like music, for example, live in person. But thinking about like all of the logistics of that four months, if you can have the same, if not better impact by just getting more people into a virtual space 
on a one-off event, all of a sudden you start to get this very interesting kind of um, argument going on for, well, discussion going on about the fact that actually virtual environments not only potentially reduce carbon emissions from people attending, but actually you're probably going to get more people attending in the first place because less people have to kind of like travel and everything and that as well might interestingly feed into well if more people are using headsets does that then outweigh the benefit of doing it as a virtual event in the first place that was all over the place but it kind of excited me thinking about like just the interesting data behind that and what what are the sort of inputs apart from distance traveled i suppose it's yeah the, the scale feels like the other thing it's just the sheer number of people reach you can only fly to so many cities i know a lot of musicians are an interesting example of as a very kind of transient lifestyle you're kind of always traveling you're always um moving around yeah no i hadn't i hadn't really put that together yeah he must have like how big would the venues have to be and how many cities would you have to do and how many months on the road i think that's it sounds probably like quite an attractive deal and, and then on the other side a deal for consumers you know i'm then- yeah an avid concert goer you know 40 plus pounds apart versus you know maybe lowering cost for consumers mm-hmm. is yeah that scale is quite exciting the economics of it kind of shift quite dramatically yeah, exactly and i was also thinking as you were speaking jack the other side of things as well so you've obviously you've got the sustainability benefits of the you know the air miles flown and things like that but you've also got on the let's say the vr headset side or even the laptop side the electricity consumed you've got the um the 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 carbon emissions generated as a result of the production of that hardware to consider so we're hoping to put all of this together and then come up with a a a net result okay well we'll we'll have to watch this space and make sure you all track down jeremy on um (laughs) on social so that so that as soon as that's out we're all aware because yeah i think alex you're not the only one who's, who's really keen to see the results of that um I think we've we've sort of talked a lot in terms of you know maybe the, the sort of marketing element things like making people aware or sort of how you contact people but i suppose in practice with with a use case like training you're thinking a bit about how um the sort of almost the root economics of um a service being delivered is shifted you know music is the same but if you for example deliver unconscious bias training um there's an opportunity there to be present in thousands of rooms. Uh, do you do you sort of feel like people, you know, people who deliver services, the types of services that maybe PwC might deliver at scale, you know, sending 10 people on site to a client for months, are you kind of seeing people waking up to that possibility of kind of just fundamentally shifting um, almost how many places, you know, someone can be or how they can scale their impact? Um, and sort of actually really transforming, a, you know, the services economy, which is huge in this country. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that the metaverse itself hasn't necessarily transformed the way services can be provided by us or others. Um, I would say that's largely been uh, a trend that has been ex- that has been on on the rise for a while now, or on the cards, but and accelerated by the pandemic the metaverse itself has been uh, buoyed by that trend and uh, we're likely to to see the metaverse being used as part of the trend towards remote delivery of these services in the future alex what do you are, are you kind of 
you know, aside, aside from those more sort of marketing focused use cases, are you seeing people people looking you know, beyond just sort of try before you buy things like the truck example? Do you kind of foresee more of that, you know, training type use case where there's a there's an actual sort of full service being delivered? And if not, like, what are the sort of barriers to that remaining? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, Jeremy probably has a better grasp on that than than me. My my kind of kind of brain goes instantly to more, I guess, education, which I guess is kind of similar to um, to the training sector. But I think about uh, when I first kind of got into VR, the fact that and obviously I keep I know I appreciate I keep coming back to the VR and it's not just VR that makes up the metaverse. But when I think about the metaverse, I think kind of some kind of immersive experience virtually is, is quite important. And I think about the fact that, you know, would I have been a scientist if this technology was around? And instead of just reading a textbook, I stepped into, you know, a, a body <laughs> and I was being taught about anatomy from inside a body. You know, would I have wanted to be a historian if I could essentially be taught by Julius Caesar himself about the history of Rome? Like, so I think, again, like coming at it from that kind of more maybe uh, big picture uh, creative sense, like I just think there's gonna be so many opportunities that we just can't even fathom right now um, that penetrate markets such as training, for example, that, that you know, that, that really kind of transformed the way that is done. My mind just instantly went to um, the beginning of filmmaking. When cinema first came about, people were just filming theatre productions because it didn't have a language of its own. It was like, oh, wow, we've got this tech to, to kind of be able to do what we do now, but do it in this way. So let's just do that. And that's where we are right now, right? We, we are so at the beginning of something that it's like, oh, yeah, we can take what we do now and do it in the metaverse whereas in five years time we're going to be like that's you know you look at cinema now it's its own thing it's so distinctive from theater it's totally different they're two distinct mediums and i feel that way about the metaverse i feel like we are at the cusp of understanding how things will be done in this metaverse but the the truth is as kind of um soppy as it sounds the possibilities are endless because that is the whole nature of a metaverse is that all of a sudden it removes all of the barriers to everything the impossible becomes possible and that is beyond exciting in any context yeah the human creativity angle i think is a really important one because you know it doesn't matter how much time we spend thinking about use cases and applications of this technology uh, there is no doubt that as the technology improves as we get new generations cultures demographics uh, that have access to the technology, that are actively exploring it, that are maybe building solutions on top of it of their own that um, are relevant to their local communities, will no doubt see the new uh, inspiring use cases pop up for what this technology could do for humanity. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, you know, you take that film example, you know, and, and it, it, made me, it made me think of what Jeremy was saying earlier about lugging all of that gear, you know, as soon as a camera becomes cheap enough that someone can set up multiple shots, that changes it. It's no longer just front on. I guess the same is true if lots of people have access to the tech to make it. And that's maybe a question that we haven't um, touched on too much is kind of, we've talked a lot about the, the end user's experience. In terms of the tech to make it, 
um, to sort of create a metaverse experience. Is that an area where you sort of also anticipate advancements? Is there anything that sort of, you know, would hold back someone, someone sitting watching this call with no experience? What would sort of maybe hold them back right now that we might expect not to in the next few years? So there are so many aspects of the technology that you could dig further into. I mean, you think about the metaverse and the devices that that are used to access it and the software that is used to give you those um, those applications. There is there's a lot of technology that sits underneath it. There's software development. There is um, there are the game engines that we spoke about earlier, user experience design, graphic design, 3D modeling, 3D animation, sound design. Uh, Alex, you know, we've been through the narrative script writing side of things as well on various projects. And that's just the software we're talking about. On the hardware side, there's industrial design, there's optics, there's physics, you know, in terms of lightweight waveguides, um, there's screen technology, there's materials, science. And so all of all of these areas, it, it's there's such a widespread amount of, of knowledge that needs to be taken to the next level to, 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 to move us a step up in terms of the metaverse. And it's and it's super exciting. And one area that we haven't even spoken about actually is uh, is the the Web 3.0 side of things or the, the the cryptocurrency side of things because they themselves are a world of their own that is very closely connected to the metaverse. And some purists would argue, of course, that uh, the, the the definition of the metaverse can't exist without some element of of decentralization enabled by uh, by blockchain technology. So yeah, there's there's a lot to talk about, but uh, you know, maybe it's uh, enough for uh, a, another session in itself, perhaps. Absolutely. I, I think uh, exactly what Jeremy said. I feel like there's not a single area that won't be impacted. And there'll be so many jobs that we, again, we just, we probably couldn't articulate what they are right now. And in two years time, there'll be someone whose job is, you know, a steward of the metaverse or something. I don't, there's already jobs popping up where you actually work in the metaverse, you know, uh, but there'll be there'll be so many kind of like advancements, I believe, over the next two to five years that will be totally transformational to the space. And in terms of like, you know, some of the, just an example of how rapidly this stuff is transforming. Again, like when I first started making VR, I started with a technology called 360 video, which essentially just allows you to capture a 360 space so that you can, again, feel like you're kind of in a virtual environment and navigate on desktop, you know, unlike the kind of traditional rectangle. And when I started, you had to get six individual GoPros and you had to stick it together on a 3D printed rig. And if any one of those cameras accidentally overheated or you didn't notice that you accidentally didn't press the button right or the 3D rig was slightly off and one of the cameras was slightly askew, your whole shot was ruined. That's how it was the most insane process to try and go through to make even the simplest bit of VR. And now- like you're speaking from a bit of experience there. <laughs> 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 oh yes um oh, they haunt me um, but you know look at us well we're we're at the place now where you've got these yeah i mean pwc own this camera where it's like it's 
it films in 11K and it's all synced to an iPad where you literally just press one button and it stitches everything together and everything's done for you and it's the most insane quality. And that's what in the space <laughs> of like, yeah, in the space of a few years that happened, yeah. like that camera came out, you know, a good few years ago now. So it's amazing the transformation and that's only on the kind of content creation from a live action point of view, you know, kind of capturing reality. And on the game side of things, you've got things like AR filters, which used to be the fact that you literally had to know how to code C sharp and like had to be like a super technical developer. And now there's all these kind of plugins where you can kind of create your own and publish them straight to Instagram or Snapchat. And it's, it's yeah, it's, it's fascinating. There's, there's so much advancement going on all the time and there'll be plenty of ways for people to kind of adopt this within their businesses, I'm sure, over the next 12 months. Yeah, so that that sort of takes it takes me nicely onto um, uh, it, the sort of maybe the closing section. Just talking about, uh, I saw there's a sort of Gartner prediction doing the rounds that they're sort of expecting by 2026 about a quarter of people are going to be spending an hour a day in the metaverse. You know, if if you're thinking about kind of what that's going to look like, what you know, who are those 25 percent of people going to be like? Who is most which industries do you think are closest to it? Or is there a type of person, a type of job that you think, a type of sort of job function that you think, Jeremy, like that's closest to, to sort of realizing that hour a day um, mark? So I think it will depend on the industry um, because although functions are shared by, uh, by industries, you'll find that different activities are performed in different functions in different industries. The, uh, the area that I think is probably worth drawing out, I would say anyone that requires hands-on practice, anyone that has practical skills that they need to deliver to an organization. So let's say uh, it could be a field worker operating for a, a telecommunications uh, company, for example. I think there is no doubt that in the future they will they will be mandated to perform immersive training because it will be more effective. And from a health and safety perspective, if it's more effective, that means, you know, less injuries, uh, less, less uh, casualties as a result of um, any accidents. So I think we'll definitely see, you know, that contingent of, of workers being introduced here. But just more generally, I think anyone in an organization that needs to go through a learning and development exercise that is related to soft skills or anything where you need to be hands-on, uh, I think they will benefit from this technology. Yeah, I would uh, add to that as well. Um, anything where someone's trying to visualize or create something that doesn't exist yet. So for example, a recent project, I work with a VR artist called Rosie Summer. She is phenomenal. And she essentially designs in VR. So for example, if, if a product, uh, you know, product concept was coming out, let's say for a new trainer, she could literally physically design the trainer in 3D and she could invite collaborators in to kind of like see it, comment on it. Oh, okay, actually that doesn't work. Maybe this needs to go here. And it's the same with like cars, anything where it's like you're creating something, architecture that doesn't exist. I believe that you'll go from flat design to 3D design quite seamlessly with this. So I would imagine that designers, you, uh, you know, product designers will probably be a huge category of people that will spend 
they're probably already spending more than an hour a day, but definitely like going forward more and more will adopt that because I mean, it makes sense, right? You're creating a 3D product. Why on earth would you design that in 2D? It makes no sense. And this is an example from the consumer world, but uh, in terms of the average daily time spent by users on Roblox, for example, which is a metaverse platform uh, without the Web 3.0 components of, of crypto and, and NFTs and all the rest of it, but uh, they they spend the last stat I saw was two point six hours a day, you know, being spent by users in uh, in that platform. So it's not that the Gartner prediction I don't think is unreasonable if we start to think about this as a as a generational shift and a cultural shift of time spent in the, in the metaverse. Hmm. It seems like it's there's something about that intersection of you know it's it's types of jobs where you actually. There is some kind of physical component, but it's maybe fulfilled at the minute at a desk because the way to do that remotely and scalably is to sit at a desk, maybe and video call people or, you know, use software on a flat computer to, to kind of design. But those, you know, the experience of working can be can be made immersive. So we're nearly at time. I want um, firstly, obviously, to thank both of our, our guests very much. And maybe if you could each just uh, let people know where to find you, where to look out for you, other, obvi other obviously, Alex than Venice um, very soon. Uh, where should where should people look out for you? Uh, for me, oh, you go. No, no, you go, Alex, you go. Um, so for me, you can find me across all social media. It's Alex Makes VR. I have a podcast which is specifically aimed at people who are creating this stuff, but there's definitely some episodes where I've had clients off the back of them because they they address um, questions, for example, how do I distribute VR content? What are the best use cases of VR in a business? That kind of thing. So especially focused on the VR side of things, uh, probably, you know, branching out into the metaverse shortly, but that's where you can find me either on the podcast at Alex Makes VR on social media. And uh... Physically, you can find me in London these days, although I will soon be based in uh, in Austin. So if anyone is in the local area and uh, fancies uh, showing me where I can find a, a veggie barbecue, that would be very helpful. Um, otherwise, in the metaverse or on the internet, you can find me at uh, www.jeremydaltonxr.com. And that has all my, my social media details, LinkedIn, Twitter, and all the like. And you can also catch um you know a summary of my book reality check as well as some of the projects that i've worked on in the vr ar and wider metaverse space fantastic well i'm sure people should be following up um on both of those to, to kind of to learn more if today's discussion has piqued their interest it's absolutely um piqued mine and uh, if all these predictions are correct then maybe we will see each other all soon virtually um in some form but um thanks very much for watching everyone Thanks so much for having Thanks me. Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks all. Bye-bye.